Hey, everybody. Welcome to What Can You Tell Me About Software? My name is Vasanth Thirvati, and I'm currently a graduate student at Santa Clara University, where I study data science, software, and technology. And my name is Faraz Abadi, and I've spent six years as the head of software at a tech startup. So, Vasanth, you know, the Bay Area, where we both grew up, is known as the hub of startup and tech innovation. Why do you think the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, the small region, is so prolific in creating startups? I've been thinking about that a lot recently, ever since we heard the news of a lot of these tech giants leaving the Bay Area. Mm. And I think what made it great in the first place is, is really a handful of reasons. You had the original technological innovation in America get, get created here. You had Bell Labs, you had Xerox Park, later you had IBM. And you've really just had 40 years of crazy technological growth. Aside from that, I think we have some great universities in the area. Obviously, a world-renowned institution that I'm a part of, Santa Clara University. Go Bulls. Uh, it's, it's the Broncos. You also have, I guess, a close second and third, you have uh, Stanford and Berkeley. So these <laughs> institutions have really just output some great, great talent into the area. Finally, I think the weather does play a huge role. I mean, in recent years, you've had fires and smoke, but aside from that, it doesn't really get too hot or too cold. When I was uh, living in other states, I always wanted to come back home. I always wanted to come back to California. And I think, I think that's really, really true for a lot of people. Well, you know, you touched upon something interesting, which is that there are other areas in the U.S. that are starting to become hot springs of real startup innovation. And our guest today has a lot to say about that in Los Angeles. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about the tech scene and the startup scene in LA. The city of angels. Let's get into it. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, Shane Ross. Shane is a full-stack software engineer and has worked for several startups over the past few years. Currently, he works for one of LA's hottest cannabis tech startups, MJ, and he also runs his own software development consulting business. Shane, welcome to what hey. can you tell me about software. Oh, whatever you want to know, Froz. Whatever you want to know. <laughs> nice. You're an open book. I mean, yeah, as long as the pages are legible. You, you were there for a bunch of the learning. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's actually a great intro. So before we get into it, I just want to tell people how we know each other. So we went to USC together and I think we were in the worst class at the school together. Let's keep the professor's name. Let's call this professor, Professor Y. But yeah, Professor Y gave lectures that were completely incomprehensible. Everyone just like spent the whole time on Snapchat or Facebook or whatever. But you, I noticed, had an intro to iOS programming book open during lecture and I think you were the only person who actually learned something in that class. Because I was reading that book instead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and I saw that. I was very impressed. Like, this seems like somebody I should know. So uh, It sounds like uh, you met his caliber. Or yeah, exactly. You, you passed my standard of friendship. <laughs> See, that's funny. I was just more worried about how I was going to pay the bills after I graduated. I was sitting in that class wondering how in the world anything I was supposed to be learning was actually going to be applicable when I graduated. And so... I went and got an iOS programming book and yeah. started learning that instead. <laughs> That's how it all started. So yeah, super impressive that you, in some senses, are kind of, at least you began as a self-taught programmer and then you uh, switched into computer science later. Yeah, I don't know if I really think of myself as self-taught, but I was definitely self-motivated. Um, I didn't mm. really have anyone 
close to me in my life growing up who was a software engineer or, or even really, you know, knew other software engineers super closely. So I didn't really even understand what it was until I was about halfway through college and I made some more friends who were studying it and had some sort of older friends who were mentors who started to get internships and explained to me sort of how different their job was from some of these jobs that I was um, pursuing as an electrical engineer, which you were studying with me and really made a pretty hard pivot and uh, graduated with a degree in computer science and computer engineering, but not in a normal four-year way. Shane, I think it's super interesting. You're originally from Idaho. You know, it's not common that you see people in tech who come from somewhere that's not uh, one of the coastal cities, as they say. What do you, how do you feel like that's colored your experience? And if you could just speak a little bit about your experience growing up in Idaho and how you really got into software, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely colored my experience. Just coming from a background where <clears throat> not everybody thinks of things in terms of how the tech works and, you know, which big company is putting out which product. It's just a product that's supposed to work at the end of the day for the end user. They don't really care what the integrations are or what's shiny and fancy about it or who built it. So I, I feel like from the very beginning of my career, it's always been really natural to empathize with the end user who doesn't, doesn't understand and, and really doesn't care how the product works. They just want it to do what you told them it was going to. So in that sense, it's definitely colored it. But yeah, it's, you know, in other ways, it's kind of been <clears throat> the same or, or maybe a bit of a disadvantage, just not being aware of certain things. You don't know what you don't sure. know. Did you um, have computer science classes? I stumble upon it. I had one. And actually, that's a pretty good story. I had one computer science class. And again, I won't name any teachers because I think he still teaches there. But it was like, an experimental class. I don't even know what to call it. It was the first time they ever offered this computer science elective and we were supposed to learn Java. And we got about to the point of building um, a little command line program that you could play blackjack against Mm -hmm. and things got out of control. (laughs) (laughs) We just, no one, he wasn't really (laughs) capable of teaching beyond writing one big mega function in a for loop on one file like i think it was i think it was eclipse we were using at the time like you had no right. idea how to use eclipse and then and the class just started to do their own thing a lot of really nerdy <laughs> smart kids took that class and we we were sitting in the computer lab so we learned that if you opened up the um, task manager you could kill the monitoring software that the teacher was using to watch what you were doing on your computer and then you could pop in a usb and fire up a pokemon emulator and pretty much play pokemon hell yeah so that's what most of that class turned into dude i guess it taught me a little bit about killing a process that's that's honestly that's honestly the way to learn i remember in high school i also took programming classes and and you know I guess because we're like a Bay Area, Silicon Valley high school, the classes were really good. But the vast majority of my learning was like, I had a business like jailbreaking iPhones. Like I I modded my Wii so I could like burn pirated games onto CDs and plug them in. Like, I feel like that's where you learn the real tech stuff. Like trying to get around authority, whether it's like uh, piracy or school or something like that. I think that's, that's what some real hacking coding stuff is. I think I knew like three different people in our high school who released iOS apps before they turned 17. It's just, it was nuts. That's crazy. See, like for me as like a junior or a sophomore in college, that was like my big goal was to release some kind of app, any right. kind of app just on the store by the end of the year. You know, I think the in high school, like the most hacky thing anyone was doing that we were super proud of was 
using a, a VPN or a DNS proxy or something to get around the school's blocks to right. keep us from going on YouTube in the middle sure. of yeah. class. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that too. Yeah, we probably used like the same tech stack for that. Yeah, whatever it was. At yeah. first, it was like a website you could go to, and then that kind of got stifled, and so you had to like again like install a program on the computer. Right. But yeah, I, I going back to what you were talking about though, with that sort of being an early sign of of a lot of people that get into tech and engineering, I think really what it comes down to is not that you're like learning how technology works because we didn't understand how that technology worked, but what we were doing was we were evaluating the constraints in front of us and saying, well, we want it to actually do this other thing and figuring out, you know, what, how could we poke it and what inputs could we make and how could Mm. we basically solve this problem in a creative way. Right. And I mean, now is it more proliferated? Like has, uh, do you guys have a lot more, if you go back to Idaho now, are there a lot more computer science classes? And in fact, are your classmates from back then in tech? Like how many of them are in tech? Um, I don't know. Some of them are in tech. It's definitely more. I mean, there's just more tech across mm-hmm. the entire country. You know, it used to just be Silicon Valley. And now every city with more than a quarter million people is you know, Silicon something. You know, Utah is really trying to push itself. University of Utah, BYU, you know, Idaho, right. Boise has got, you know, a couple of startups that have, you know, made waves with, you know, wow. nine figure exits and things like wow. that. Wow. Um, yeah, there's just kind of, yeah, Qualtrics, Qualtrics is the really big one out of Utah mm-hmm. um, that, that some of my friends worked at. And then I can't remember the exact name of the company out of Eagle, but they were acquired by Intuit for quite a large sum. Interesting. So yeah, so it's definitely grown. There's probably like an actual computer science curriculum now if I were to sure. go back and see what my high school has to offer today. So yeah, it's definitely grown. It's definitely grown. I definitely got, you know, a little fortunate, you know, or, or just maybe have the right intuition jumping into tech and it didn't like fall off a cliff, continue right. to be a big deal across the country. So yeah, you've been you've been coding iOS now for how long? Uh, when was that? When was that class with Professor Y at USC when you first started reading that iOS book? That would have been the beginning of our junior year, I believe. Okay, so like uh, so seven that years was ago, two thousand late two thousand fourteen. So that would have been yeah, almost seven years ago now. Okay, and so yeah, you've seen quite the landscape and quite the changes in the iOS ecosystem. So and you can get technical with this. In fact, I'd prefer for you to. How has the tech changed since then to today? been nonstop really it was it honestly i felt like it was changing a lot faster when i when i first joined i feel like that's the most that it's changed in the 30 year history of ios the year that i started learning ios was the year that swift came out so i actually started learning started learning objective c you know swift was this brand new thing no one was really even hiring for it yet but all the big companies were starting to work on it you know and start to maybe try to build a new feature in it here or there how did that differ from objective c so Objective-C is based on message passing principles. Swift is much more loosely typed. It looks like Python or JavaScript. It is strongly typed. You do declare your types and all of that, but just the brevity. Mm. The brevity. And then really what, what changed a lot of it too was all of the major iOS frameworks like UIKit were re-released in Swift. I see. So are they still, is Swift still the dominant language for iOS programming? At this point, I'd say Swift is the dominant the dominant language. Yeah, there's still a lot in Objective-C. You know, oh. a lot of the iOS code that runs in our iPhone is probably Objective-C or Objective-C++ wow. even. Yeah, I, I think at this point, Apple has the most Objective-C code under sort of, I guess you would call active development. 
of anyone in the world. Swift's rapid success has almost been slightly to Apple's detriment because they no longer can readily find Objective C engineers to work on right, the code. Right, right, I'm right. Sh- I'm sure they. I'm sure they still find them. Apple's a, a massive company with unlimited resources, but Swift definitely took off in popularity faster than anybody expected. And the, the shift from Objective C to Swift happened faster than Apple anticipated. So those first three years of Swift, I'd say, were pretty nonstop changes from Swift 1 to Swift 2 to Swift 3. The languages were, were not really, they, they might've been backwards compatible, but there was definitely a lot of changes you had to make. Mm-hmm. They provided migration tools that sort of helped, but it was difficult. The, the, the move from Swift 4 and then to Swift 5 was a lot easier. I remember mm-hmm. that being just a, sort of a regular task I was able to, to do as a maintenance upgrade. And so that was the, the major development within iOS the first few years that I was doing it, the transition to Swift and, and sort of the evolution and maturity of other products, Cocoa Pods, Swift was getting its own package manager eventually. And then not so much in iOS development, but more just in the mobile development world in around 2016. Uh, it's not when it came out, but when it really sort of became a lot more popular was React Native by Facebook. And React Native really promised to change the way that everyone did native, eliminate the need for iOS engineers, Android engineers, and just have this sort of JavaScript monoculture ecosystem where your web engineers could be your mobile engineers. And if you ran Node, could also be your server engineers. So let's, uh, little- let's dig into that a, l- a little bit more. So you're saying that... Basically, React came in and it said that you don't need to learn how to program for iPhone. You don't need to learn how to program for Android. If you know how to make basically front end web dev, then you get iPhone and Android for free. Is that accurate? Well, that's what they said, but that's not accurate. <laughs> okay. So what, what, what actually in your experience has happened? So it's evolved. It's evolved. So at the time, we're talking about 2016 when React Native just came out. And so it was nowhere near a one-to-one native experience. And they were, they were fairly upfront with that, that, you know, features were under development, things would be added, you know, for example, the most, the the biggest one that that stood out is there's no defined way by Facebook to do navigation necessarily. And to just have all of those little native touches that, when you talk about an app, you don't really talk about, but when you actually go to use an app, you immediately notice like, oh, why doesn't this naturally scroll and have momentum Mm. when I finish throwing Mm. it? Or, you know, why when I zoom, does it have a little bit of jank? And so (laughs) JavaScript has worked really hard. React Native has worked really hard. All these developers all across the world have worked really, really hard in the last four or five years to make React Native come a lot closer to an authentic experience. And it's, it probably is a lot closer, but I haven't really dived deep into that world because for what I was doing, there was always an existing iOS app and there was existing native iOS knowledge in what I knew and what other people on the team knew. And so the switching cost of jumping over to React right. Native never, never really made sense. And then I did finally get into a situation at MJ where there was already React Native in the iOS app when I got there. My boss had been developing on it and he didn't really know iOS. So he added React Native as a way for him to make modifications and adjustments. And so it worked for him. It was the right tool for the right time to go in and, and make a job easier to do. Unfortunately, that came with a steep learning curve that very quickly caught up. And it, it didn't take long before the code base wasn't 
really necessarily even buildable or getting getting <laughs> pushed up, pushed up to get you know that modifications would be made it would be tested and run on that one particular machine where the whole react native configuration worked <laughs> if it was good it would kind of get shipped out and so when i came in we fixed that and we, we made it so everything was you know steady and worked but that required my intimate knowledge of native ios workings uh. because react native react native at the end of the day is just a dependency pulled in through CocoaPods and you drop a little JavaScript web view in the iOS app. So it's still an iOS app. And right, if you want right. to do the Android version, you also got to spin up Android Studio and have an Android app right. and put a little, it's just a web view on, you know, world-class steroids. And so the idea is really slick and you can even take it one step further and just program your React app. And this is what I think is really kind of the future program your react app so that it's mobily responsive so it's responsive on all screen sizes and it looks really great on mobile mm -hmm. and then you can just drop that in your mobile app and you again you lose out on a lot of those native touches like swiping and navigation and native experiences but if you I have a, an experience that doesn't really require that then you can really get free for one and you can actually have the exact same code base you put on your mobile app and if you really need to do like mobile specific things you can start to push the envelope on how your mobile website in browser works like a mobile app. And can you, you can into, you, you, can you things like called, yeah, what? can you give an example of some application that might truly live the three code bases or just one uh, code base that truly live the, the, the React Native experience? Oh, yeah. So we, we did it at a company that I was at once, actually. It was uh, at an energy company, and people basically opened the app and didn't expect to to have any sort of interaction with the app. They just opened it to look at their bill. They could see their monthly energy usage. They could see the price of that energy usage. And then they could see how much they were charged for that energy usage over, you know, over time. And it was just three tabs, a fourth tab for all your profile and your account information. And again, so you could like, you know, sign up and subscribe and all that stuff. And it was a complete read-only experience. Mm. You know, you, you would drop down a little table so you could see more information, but it's still read-only. So ultimately what we did is just really polished up the website so that it had a really amazing mobile responsive experience. And then it was just a matter of mm. coordinating the mobile apps so that depending on which tab you clicked on, you would get sort of a different web page loading up. I see. So do you think that do you think that React will eventually truly fulfill the three for one promise? So I don't think React is really trying to fulfill that three for one promise. There's a project called React Native Web that more specifically tries to solve it. I think using React to do it in web in mobile web views kind of requires your own sort of delicate touch and compromise. Like that example that I just described, we dropped these web views into a native tab controller so that we can maintain that native iOS navigation experience uh -huh, and then right. read the read-only the read components. Right. Each component was like a web page, basically. And so we could I have see. taken it a step further and programmed like a mobile web tab, but our mobile web experience dropped those same pages in a different navigation controller that is actually what Android looked like. So Android was able to just be one single web view and then use a hamburger menu up top that doesn't have cool. the same sort of expected native animation to it. Gotcha. So what is the difference between React and React Native? React is for the web and React Native is a um, mobile SDK that compiles into, compiles down into, you know, rendering on iPhone or an Android device.
Gotcha. So one thing that I think is quite interesting is the fact that the classical React, which is a pretty powerful front-end framework, is given away by Facebook for free. You know, They could have kept that as their own secret sauce, and they could have just built that as an internal tool, but they didn't. Why do you think they open-sourced it? Oh, I think they were just following in the footsteps of other great technologies being open-sourced so that they could accelerate the innovation and the advancement of what React really was. I mean, React wasn't what it is today when it was an internal Facebook project. React has become what it is today mm -hmm. because it was open source and because the community has so much input development. I mean, if you look at some React code when it was internal at Facebook, there's probably a bunch of refs being passed around and just these massive class components with really big state lifecycle methods. You wouldn't see any of that now because of the introduction of hooks and so many higher order components and the way that react is written now it's it's really nice you know it's yeah. really nice yeah but, I, but but that's but that's not facebook that's the open source community that did right. it after facebook open open sourced it and now facebook gets to benefit the way that the rest of us do and at the end of the day it is still a facebook license then they get to decide what license is on react that everybody's using Right. Yeah. And I think it's good for them from a PR perspective, right? You know, Google's always known as like, oh, you get to work with the smartest people in the world and interesting problems. And Facebook now, like, you know, there, there are some, there are some reasons to be skeptical of Facebook, the company, but in terms of engineers, it's indisputable that, that Facebook has got some of the best engineers in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think all those fan companies, that's sort of the, the draw and the attraction is that you're going to get with these world-class engineers, world-class process, world-class product managers, just really work for this world-class company and sort of see how to do these products. What people think is going to be, I think, often sort of the right way. And yeah, that's a really great way to go. I haven't really been of that same mindset pursuing it myself, but yeah, it's, a, it's hard to deny. It's a great job working up there. I think it's super, super fascinating that in tech, you have this piece of each of these fang businesses that don't even have any strict revenue models. You don't see that in any other industry. You don't go to like the food industry and they don't have a significant chunk of their internal talent working on something that's open source uh, per se. You know, that's not really generating any revenue. I guess that's like strictly new and in just intuitive for tech. Also, Shane, I wanted to touch on MJ. You said earlier that you work at MJ. What's that? So MJ is a... Uh cannabis delivery service in Los Angeles, getting ready to expand all across Southern California down to San Diego. Um, there's a website, amj.com. You can go check it out, make an account, upload your identification to prove that you're old enough and order whatever you want. We have hundreds and hundreds of products at this point, you know, ounces of flour, every edible you can think of, tinctures, bath salts, devices, accessories, hats. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll deliver it straight to your door same day a couple hours what sort of uh technological problems are you solving at mj so it's pretty cool it's it's really sort of like the same technological problems that a lot of people are solving these days whether you're amazon or postmates or anyone really doing sort of e-commerce and mm -hmm. delivering the product all the way to the mm -hmm. end user you know we're a fully integrated experience so we have in-house products that come from our farms or manufactured and arrive at the depot and then all those products need to be inventoried and you know made available for sale online and then once they're actually selected they need to be packaged sent out with a courier 
Uh, the courier needs to know where to go. The courier has their own app to then complete the transaction with the customer. The customer has the option of paying with their debit card. They have the option of paying or prepaying online ahead of time. It's a company called HyperPay to do sort of an ACH bank transaction. Uh, because That's of the tech piece to it. Yeah, because of the nature of the, the, the semi-legal nature of cannabis at a federal right. level, we're not allowed on major credit card networks. So the payment processing portion is probably the most interesting sort of tech thing that we have to solve. Got and it's it. really just that we can't use Stripe. We can't be on credit card networks. So we have a system in place for processing debit cards. You know, basically the couriers will have the same kind of like debit card terminal that someone would normally have like in, in a restaurant they would bring up to you or cash or this, uh, this bank transfer. So you guys are you guys are rolling uh, credit card and payment processing yourself. That, that's what I'm saying. It's it's kind of just the biggest constraint on the business is we can't take credit cards, and so we had to sort of go the extra mile and offer ACH payments, which isn't something that a normal e-commerce company would do. Because why would you do that? You could just use your credit card. So you got, but you guys rolled the payment processing yourself. No, it's through this company called HyperPay that we just integrated with. I see. Um, a few months ago. I see. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, so all those problems, every step along the way that I was describing, there is an iPad app or a web app or some other function, basically some other technology that needs to be built out and, and scaled. You know, we're a team of about five engineers and oh, that's really small. Um, over a hundred employees uh, wow. operationally making this whole thing happen. And that's not including the couriers. We have over a hundred uh, drivers as well. Wow. Sure. Um, did you apply any algorithms that we learned from CS class? Probably. I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's anything that's been applied directly. Like if you're um, uh, like the, if you're the, the, if you're sending out couriers, like is there some like traveling salesman optimized heuristic type thing? No, because we have a whole team of dispatchers that are that are more efficient at doing that. Okay. Any 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 sort of traveling salesman algorithm <laughs> that we, we could have yet to figure out at this point because there's just so many variables around Los Angeles traffic and new orders coming in in real time and things like that. I think the most classical algorithm that I've used in the most classical sense would be the Levenstein distance. Do you familiar with what that one was? No, I don't. I don't remember that one. So Levenstein, that's a, a string manipulation algorithm. You're looking at a uh, cat and caught and you're saying okay well you had to change one letter to get from cat to caught and so that you assign a certain score that's your levenstein distance the number of uh ads deletions and or edits that you need to make to go from one word to the next right wow and so one of the things that we did build from scratch we replaced an id scanning company with our own in-house solution i, I leveraged some aws technologies like recognition and text extract to build out an ID scanning service where our customers will get a little mobile web experience and communicate with the desktop via web sockets in real time. So they see, okay, now upload your front of your ID, upload the back of your ID, like take a selfie. And we match that the selfie is on the ID. And we also need to look at the driver's license and determine like, you know, their birthday, the expiration date, what state is this license from so that we can compare it to the barcode on the back, which also needs to be decoded. But anyway, it's not a perfect science getting the text off of that image from right. who knows what kind of cell phones camera quality. Right, so right. We, we, use, we use the Levenstein distance to check for the word driver's license or it's nationally sort of defined by the DMV 
all of the different words that can be on a driver's license that a state then gets to choose from when they design that state's driver's license. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're basically just checking for those words when a certain Levenstein just cool. needs to decide, like, is this a national identity card? Is this a regular driver's license? So we can then further decode the rest of the information. Super That's cool. awesome. Yeah. I actually have a question for both of you guys. When you decide to build something in-house, how, what's that decision-making process? Like you're like, you know, maybe whoever you're contracting it out to right now, whatever service uh, you're using is maybe too expensive. What's sort of the rubric that you guys are using before you decide to build it in-house? Yeah, it's a straight cost-benefit analysis. We look at how much things are costing us, you know, and how well they're performing. This particular service was expensive and they weren't really doing the job that they claimed to be doing. You know, we had a lot of manual in, in, intervention and mm-hmm. basically sort of like, you know what, this is, this is costing us a dollar per scan. Mm. Half of the scans we have to go in and correct anyway, you know? So could we build something better ourselves? And we thought about it and we talked about it and we're like, yeah, I'm like, all right, well, let's stop spending our time discussing it and let's just try and do it and let's see what kind of basic version we can get out and we we discussed and this has sort of always been our strategy you know what's the part that we're most unsure we can accomplish what's our riskiest assumption we're making here and let's build that part first and if you can build that part first and you can kind of clear out the foggiest part of your design or your ambition very quickly, you can then estimate out all the easy parts and say, yeah, no, I know for sure that we can get this done in, in two months and it's going to accomplish this core functionality because this core functionality or this sort of tricky algorithm that you had to design to make it work. Yeah, I, I actually, I know that a lot of startups come out from they're working on something and they build this internal tool and the internal tool kicks ass and they launch that as their as a product as well. And that that's also successful. So since you guys built what I imagine is a fairly significant problem, which is scanning, especially IDs, like Coinbase also has that. And I think more and more companies are going to be using ID scanning. Have you guys thought about selling this as well as a product? Yeah, that's the plan. So we merged earlier this year with several other companies in the delivery space, one of which being an alcohol company. So they also need to scan IDs. They, they mm-hmm. do alcohol and tobacco delivery. So they're in the process of integrating with us right now. My latest sort of pass through the scanner code base was to just continue to generalize it so that it could be deployed as its own service. It could deploy its own in AWS infrastructure. Nice. And be configurable. You know, the alcohol delivery service also requires a signature to verify that you are the age that you say you are. Just different wording of the law. So right. yeah, yeah, that's always been the plan and to cool. really sort of go from being a dominant player in our space to a dominant vendor in our space. That's Super the way to do it. That's like the uh, Slack dilemma. You guys are familiar with the Slack story. They start off as a gaming company and then they built this internal messaging tool and then they quickly realized that served a far greater purpose. They pivoted, completed it with Slack. Well, what is now Slack? And now they're, I guess, like a multi-multi-billion dollar company. But on that topic, on the cannabis topic, I think you just mentioned you were consolidating with other companies. Do you think that's sort of the future of cannabis? You know, eventually there comes a day where we get federally legalized and regulated. Does it become that we really just have three or four really big cannabis operators in the country, similar to how alcohol is now? I think we all, we continue to see a, a certain level of consolidation based on what the consumer is looking for. You know, the consumer is constantly seeking lower prices. And at present, there's not a huge amount of brand loyalty because brands are sort of a new concept in general in cannabis. I remember going sure. to a, you know, a medical dispensary several years ago 
and there's no problems. You just, you just picked the strain that you wanted and they, they pulled out a big jar and they weighed it in front of you and they, they clicked it in your container and you went on your way. And now when you go shopping, it's all these different brands, you know, Alien Labs, Cannabiotics, and Sherbinsky's. And so you're trying to, at that point, then decide between what's already similar products, but they're now being differentiated by brands, not necessarily the strain or the specific farm that, that grew them. Brands are hopefully associated with the farm, but not always. Well, that's super interesting. I think most of the mindshare in the media, at least is for cannabis, they, they really just talk about federal legalization. They don't really jump into like, you know, what, what is happening? I mean, we saw Drizzly just get acquired by Uber. I don't know if you saw that. Oh yeah, no, totally. That's, so that, um, that could totally be yeah. Uber. Uber could be delivering cannabis in 10 years. Yeah, possibly. That's something we were discussing, you know, because as, as I mentioned, one of the companies that we merged with was an alcohol delivery company. So mm-hmm. Their main competitor uh, has been for years, Drizzly. So, yeah, we talk about what, what that would kind of look like. We would potentially be acquired or merged. But at the moment, we're just working on expanding uh, throughout Southern California. The, the addressable market here is is massive. But obviously, with the both senators in Georgia winning their runoff for the Democratic Party and Kamala Harris now being able to break the any sort of tie that presents itself in the Senate, it really opens up the possibility in the next two years for some form of passage of you know, decriminalized, if not fully legalized, right. recreational cannabis. And we've already seen that have a bit of an impact on sort of the cannabis industry, the amount of investment dollars have started to flow in mm. in a way that they haven't in a few years, sure. in the past two months. Let's talk about Southern California. So I think you and Faraz both under the same school, obviously, but you guys also stayed back after you graduated uh, and worked there. You're still working there. What do you think about Silicon Beach? Uh, I think that's the that's a phrase that gets thrown around. Is that legit? I mean, I don't have any money now, but if I did, should I be buying real estate in Silicon Beach near Santa Monica? Well, let me let me just let me just interrupt you, Vasant. You're paying twenty dollars a month for Zoom Premium, so you clearly have money. So Silicon Beach, I think it kind of depends where exactly you're calling silicon beach i mean you can get really really specific with it and just say that it's only that neighborhood in playa vista that is its own little municipality with its own elementary school and its own walking paths and its own security and all of that and i I worked there for a while i've worked there twice actually in two different um offices and it's a really really nice area it's almost identical to silicon valley priced real estate already because i think it's strictly silicon valley transplants moving down there or maybe people just kind of cruising over from the west side of Hollywood on down to Playa Vista. But then you also have a really big tech campus right in Santa Monica with Snapchat and Riot Games. And, and that integrates a little bit more with just the already existing city of Santa Monica. And, and then sandwiched between those two areas, you have an even larger area of Culver City, which has itself kind of started to reach maturity and really flourish in its development and has major companies like Sony headquartered right there. So it's definitely got room to grow. I think it's a great area to be. It's the reason I chose to stay down here instead of going up to the Bay Area into right. what was kind of the more well-trodden path for software engineers. Right. So yeah, come on down. <laughs> well, I'd to expand on that too. My startup, my last startup was in, so all the areas that Shane's talking about are on the west side of LA. Mm-hmm. And east side to west side are almost like entirely different cities. It's like an hour drive from the west side to the east side, longer in traffic, which is often in, in LA. So my startup was in east LA, and there are a lot of startups that are also in downtown LA. So, I mean, you can also talk about LA in general as this kind of uh, tech hub that's that's growing. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out of there. I'll tell you one difference between LA and the Bay Area 
is when you're trying to recruit talent, it can actually paradoxically be harder to recruit talent in the Bay Area because there are so many, there is so much talent, but there's also so much, so many companies who are aware of this talent who are competing for it. Whereas for me, I was getting like world-class interns and world-class new grads from Caltech, from USC to join our company. Whereas when I was also going to career fairs at Stanford and telling them, hey, come to our booth, there was just 10 times as many people who were trying to recruit them. So it was just hard to stand out as a startup amongst all that noise. Whereas in LA, there's still, I think there's more opportunity, especially if you're near top schools. Yeah, right. absolutely. And that, and that was one of the main reasons why I really felt confident in staying is just looking at the numbers, you know, what, how many venture capital dollars are floating around Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. How many startups are there? And how many software engineers are here? And the ratio is absolutely skewed in favor of the software engineers. Nice. There's a lot of venture capital money down here, especially when you consider it relative to the number of startups they're trying to soak it up. There's even more venture capital money up in the Bay, but there is a gargantuan number of companies up there all competing for it. So you're right. It really does create this sort of highly competitive atmosphere where you might have world-class talent, but you also have world-class companies competing for it. Down in Los Angeles, you have a more diverse blend of people, you know, doing things in Hollywood, doing things downtown and finance, doing things in East LA. You don't feel like you're in so much of a monoculture. Right. um, Right. Which has a lot of of benefits. You know, you might not get the highest salary in the world, but you get a lot of other things that can play out in the long run. I think along those lines too, one of the benefits of being in a place where not everyone is thinking about tech, you get exposed to more problems. So and what I mean by that is problems in the sense of starting a startup. So everyone says like, when you start a company, make a, make a company that solves a problem that you've personally faced. Well, that's kind of been saturated, right? Like we've made all the dating apps that we're, I mean, maybe they will make more, but that problem <laughs> is very explored. We've made a lot of social media companies. We've made a lot of photo sharing apps. I mean, we've done all this stuff, right? But what about people who are working at other businesses, people who did not grow up in software engineering and are not just hanging out with their software engineers. I think they have a lot of interesting problems that have not been adequately explored or solved yet. So people in LA might be better equipped to solve those than people who are in the dairy <laughs> monoculture. You guys made a great pitch for Southern California. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Because not only you know, have I been able to have my a successful career as a software engineer down here in Southern California, but I've also been able to have a successful software consulting businesses without having to do any sort of really marketing or outreach. You know, there are just so many people that have their own ideas and they legitimately want help with someone to solve it and get it done. And it's not just your typical, you know, I don't want to say Silicon Valley problem, but it's a, a more unique range of things people are trying to do, whether it's for the entertainment industry or for their, their food truck or, or whatever it is. So what sort of consulting is it that you do? It's just general software consulting, IT consulting. So any sort of technology problems someone might need solved, it typically involves building a web app, but it's also been, you know, just rehashing, not rehashing, fixing bugs in an old iOS app, managing infrastructure and making sure the certificates stay up to date just so that everything continues to run. So it's anything from maintenance to almost being a rent a CTO and, interviewing and hiring candidates and staffing up the company internally until it can kind of run without me. So when did you, when did you start your company, Shane? So it's, it's something that I've done since college, actually. I don't know if you remember, but when we were doing our senior project, we were working on this iOS app and I just got really bored with my 
responsibility of it really quick because it wasn't very uh, it wasn't very in-depth but it wasn't meant to be in-depth it was meant to be a senior project where we all learned a new skill and I ended up on something that I already knew how to do and so the professor just brought some work my way and was like hey I'll pay you money to work on this other iOS app instead and so I did that that was the first project I took on and then that very quickly developed into another project I went to my iOS professor actually and was getting a little bit of his help to finish up that contract and then he offered me another contract and I came and worked for him on some stuff um, then I went to take it master and it's just kind of always been a, a constant thing that same professor from college reached back out reached back out to me that app that I had fixed some bugs on they decided they wanted to do a whole rewrite of it now and so I got to completely rewrite that nice submit that and then again just while I was at Gritty, I've continued to just do little random projects on the side for friends. And uh, currently I'm working with a friend to help launch his startup. Um, it's like a social network for salespeople. I can't say nice. too much more than that at the moment. Getting ready to launch soon. But I've really been operating more just sort of a, uh, almost a CTO role. You know, bringing, helping to bring on other software engineers, helping to design the system, the architecture. You know, how does that integrate operationally with the business? And how do we prioritize launching that business as soon as possible? Awesome. So through your consulting business, you've probably worked with a lot of different technologies. You probably learned a lot from working with so many clients. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, definitely. I try to approach each problem with an open mind on how exactly it needs to be solved rather than coming into everything saying like, oh, I can build iOS apps or I can do this or I can do right. that. Like, let me... Let, let me Rather than approaching every problem with a hammer, I approach every problem and say, okay, what, what tool do I need, even if it's a tool I maybe haven't used recently? Right. So tell me, what's, what's some of the coolest tech you've been messing around with lately? <laughs> the Tesla Furious mode. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> At the moment, it's been a lot the same. <laughs> it's okay. been a lot of... It's been, well, actually, no, I take that back. The coolest thing that I've been working on recently, it's not through my consulting company, it's just with with my job at MJ, but we've recently added machine learning to our platform through a managed service with Amazon called mm. Personalize. And so that's been a really different experience setting up that entire data pipeline and feeding it with data, building some serverless architecture so that it can continue to add data in real time and then monitoring that machine learning solution you know, using statistical metrics to determine if it's actually giving us good results so that's been something entirely new for me it's been pretty cool and a, and a fairly new offering out of aws i don't think personalized has been out for more than a year it sounds to me like you guys um use aws a lot it seems like you're using a lot of the services from aws once you decide that or once you've decided that aws is going to be a serverless architecture and you're fully uh involved with it how difficult would it be to switch to azure or some other cloud provider so I've talked about AWS a lot, but really AWS just offers these really unique machine learning services that we've integrated with. Um, all of our server architecture is deployed on Google Cloud Platform, GCP. Um, mm -hmm. But all of that is deployed in Docker containers orchestrated through Kubernetes. So it probably wouldn't be too crazy to switch platforms if we had to because of the way sure. that we've built everything out. But we've integrated AWS to enable some of these newer products like the IE scanner or the machine learning. I, I believe Google has some competing products, but I was there. Cool. The decision was left to me. We went to AWS. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's your ultimate career ambition, Shane? 
So I want to and intend to be a, a CTO, you know, whether it's as a sort of an early stage sort of founder or a larger company is a little bit less clear in my mind, but I really enjoy having my hands in every sort of part of the tech stack and working with a variety of people to sort of get the most out of an entire team and, and, and see those larger goals that we can achieve together. So that's always been my goal is to get a broad enough exposure and go just deep enough that I can be helpful to everybody on the team. I think the last five years of you working in your consulting business are probably are very unique, absolutely very unique. I, I don't know anyone else who's got a consulting business in our age range. So that's a really, really valuable experience. In some senses, you've worked for like half a dozen startups, a dozen startups at this point. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely worked for a lot of companies. And I think that's kind of why I started doing the consulting business because I saw my friends who were literal consultants for EY or Deloitte or, or whoever, and they would switch projects every few months and they would suddenly get exposed to a new technology stack or just a, a new group of people in the way that they right. approached problem solving. And I didn't want to keep switching jobs every six months because I liked my jobs yeah. to an extent for you know long periods of time. So that's kind of what I would do. I kind of, looking back, I've noticed a pattern. I'll start a job, I'll get really into it. I'll learn everything I can at that corporate position. And then about after a year, the amount of new stuff readily available to learn starts to decrease a little bit and I get a little bit you know, distracted. And so I can kind of refocus myself by doing a little bit outside of work to whether it's consulting or a personal project, just sort of keep my mind fresh. Awesome. So what do you think is the best piece of software written, either recent or all time? Yeah. So uh, uh, something actually kind of jumps to mind that I remember learning about in college in a really cool networking class. I think the greatest software of all time has been the, the combination of implementing IP, TCP over IP. Really? Um, which is really, to kind of say it in more layman's terms, the inter- it's the protocol suite the internet works on. IP stands for internet protocol and TCP stands for transmission control protocol. They're essentially uh, a guarantee for getting a packet from one computer to the other. And then a guarantee for breaking up all of your data into packets and getting it there ultimately all together. It's like, if you had a, I think the best way to describe it is if you have a book and you want to send that book to Faraz but you're not sending it through the usual UPS method. You're going to walk this book to Faraz yourself one page at a time. <laughs> and you have your address, Faraz has his address. And so you're going to just go to your neighbor's house and just check their address. And you're going to see that, you know, how much of that address matches Faraz, you know, and that's like the IP address, your street address. And so eventually you'll find yourself in the same city as Faraz. And eventually you'll find yourself on the same street and then you'll find Faraz's street number. And we've sent out, a thousand vassants and each one has a page of this book. And so eventually Faraz will get all 300 pages of this book and he can arrange it and he can read it. And that's, the, you know, in a, in a rough layman's terms, TCP over IP and how all of the information on the internet is transferred globally and reliably. That's a, that's a great answer. I think uh, one of the most amazing things about TCP over IP is this hasn't changed in 30 years. I mean, there have been minor tweaks, but the fundamental core building blocks of this are the internet. This is not something that you can just like rip out and say, oh, you know what? We got version 2.0, right? We got Swift 5.0. Who cares about backwards compatibility? You can't do that when like all of this major internet infrastructure was built off of this. So the kind of design design decisions that the guys had to make when they were building this out to be scalable 
and to not collapse when there's no way they could have known that the internet would become what it did is, I mean, that's a great answer. Like that, that truly is amazing, amazing software development. Yeah. And that's why I think it's really some of the greatest software of all time um, is because it was built with such a simplistic elegance that without even needing the foresight to develop something that would scale to literally trillions of packets being sent constantly it works about as beautifully as anyone could expect and it, and it's not like either one protocol does it it is really good for getting data from point a to point b but like eventually maybe <laughs> if, it, if you send enough packets and then tcp is really good for making sure that the entire message gets there again if it ever finds where it's going correctly right so putting the two algorithms on top of each other the two protocols on top of each other and layering them in that way and then having that layering still be so modular that every single computer in the world can take advantage of that um, mind blowing well shane it's been amazing i learn a lot as i always do with these uh, episodes but uh, thank you so much for joining us especially considering i mean you're in your tesla you're headed somewhere oh we actually just arrived i've been in santa barbara getting ready to have a nice valentine's Day weekend but thank you for oh, having me cool. on the podcast it's been uh, so much fun i love doing these Thanks. Gotcha. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've also learned a ton, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I just had a telemarketing call come in. <laughs> seems, that but... seems to happen to all of us these days. That, you know what, but... Shane? You've talked a lot about how great TCP over IP is, but I think we wouldn't be having so many auto-robo calls if it weren't for TCP over IP. I know, it's too reliable these days. It's too reliable. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you could leave us some feedback, we'd really appreciate it. We're trying to make this podcast increasingly better, get get the type of guests that you guys want to listen to. So go ahead and leave a comment, uh, rate us. And again, thank you for listening. No.